Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 156 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 7, the flight. Your Godspeed, Apollo 7. Very early in the flight, the general pattern of go for Apollo 7 was established in a conversation between the spacecraft and mission control at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas. Right on the old button. Very good. Flight booster. Yeah. We appear we may be slightly marginal on locks. We'll keep it. Okay, stand by. Cut off. J2, cut off. Beautiful. Fido. Black Fido, we're go. Go across the board. TMC looks good, flight. 25553. H dot is minus four balls one. Across the board. We have you go for orbit. You're go for orbit. The launch went smoothly the Saturn rocket blasting the command and service module into a low Earth orbit. To television viewers, as the engines ignited, there appeared to be one heart-stopping moment of hesitation. But, because Apollo and its two-stage launch rocket weighed 1.3 million pounds, the launch acceleration was gradual, taking 10 seconds to clear the tower. In mission control at Houston, the late morning liftoff dictated the orbital shift schedule. Lunny's team, with all the crewmen generally awake, worked the day shift. Krantz, the swing shift, with Don Isley on watch in the spacecraft, and Griffin got the graveyard shift, staying in touch with Wally Sherall and Walt Cunningham. Sherall had set up a duty watch on board the command module so that an astronaut would be awake throughout the entire mission. This plan was counter to the experience NASA had in Jiminy, and no one of the flight directors thought Wally's watch was a good idea. It was tough enough to sleep the first days in space, and if someone is awake rustling around or communicating, it's almost impossible. Slightly over 10 minutes after liftoff, Apollo 7's booster cuts off and orbit. The spacecraft stays attached to the S-4B second stage for a couple of revolutions while the crew tests out some procedures necessary on a later flight to the moon. 
Two hours and 55 minutes after liftoff, they separate from the S-4B. Now they rehearse the turnaround and maneuver in which they would pick up their lunar module, or LEM, on a moon landing mission. Following orbital injection and separation from the S-4B, the crew turned the command service module around using its reaction control system thrusters, and Isley practiced a simulated lunar module rendezvous and docking using a visual reference target mounted inside the spacecraft adapter in the same radial position it occupied on the lunar module. One of the adapter panels on the S-4B failed to completely deploy to its 45-degree open position, reminding Capcom, who was Tom Stafford in this case, of his angry alligator experience on Gemini 9A, when docking was prevented by misdeployed adapter panels. Had this been an actual lunar mission, the astronauts might have found the process of lunar module extraction from the adapter more difficult, risking possible damage. This reinforced the decision to add a system to explosively separate and jettison the panels on all subsequent Apollo Saturn V flights. Next, the spacecraft and S-4B stage were separated. The question now was whether the astronauts could turn their spacecraft around and control it to the degree required for future physical link-ups with equipment in space. For this, too, would have to be done in the lunar flight. And again, the answer was yes. Something that will not be seen in the lunar flight or in any other forthcoming Apollo mission were the panels at the top of the S-4B stage. They will simply be jettisoned in the future, but they drew comment in Apollo 7. And the slot panel at the top, left, and bottom are opened uh, at, I would just be about a 45 degree angle, and the slot panel on the right is just opened, oh, maybe uh, 30 degrees at the very best. Oh, uh, Roger. Looks like you're looking at a four-jawed angry alligator. Apollo 7 escorted its spent S-4B stage through space for perhaps 30 minutes, then departed. That's a bigger one, Tom. Rated now? Yes. It's absolutely beautiful here. Now here's a clip of the astronauts describing the maneuver after the flight was over. Walt, would you describe this? You were the photographer here. These are the pictures that we took uh, after the S-4B separation and turnaround. And while he's flying the spacecraft back in uh, very gently, ever so gently, I should say, and we started taking uh, films from, uh, oh, I guess this must have been about 100 feet away and bringing it right on in. I believe the closest pictures we got were something like about 25 feet. We're looking at one of the deployed panels on the slaw, and I believe the one that doesn't quite show up down the lower right-hand corner is the one that... Uh, apparently came open and then bounced back part way to about 20 degrees opening. Right now we're passing across the... Uh, we, we hit the states yet here, Wally? Yes, we're just coming up on the Gulf Coast. At the end of the first shift, Glenn Lunny handed Krantz a clean spacecraft at the beginning of the sixth orbit. The command service module was trouble-free, so Krantz's principal concern was a report 
by the weathermen that a low-pressure system was developing off Cuba, 750 miles south and east of Houston. With Houston's proximity to the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico, a hurricane could make it tough on mission control. About 15 hours into the flight, and a half hour before Krantz was to hand over the controls to Griffin's team, Chiral said, quote, Houston, I have developed a head cold and have taken two aspirin. I've gone through eight or nine Kleenexes with some pretty good blows. I'm thinking about taking a decongestant or antibiotic, end quote. Krantz's team surgeon recommended the decongestant only, and Krantz took his surgeon with him to the press conference at 2 a.m. and was surprised by the large turnout. The doctor turned out to be the star of the show, and with few problems on the spacecraft, Chiral's cold, the first space illness, made the headlines of newspapers across the country and grabbed time on the network telecast. Cunningham and Isley soon caught Chiral's cold. Now, a cold is uncomfortable enough on the ground. In weightless space, it presents a different problem. Mucus accumulates, filling the nasal passages, and does not drain from the head. The only relief is to blow hard, which is painful to the eardrums. So the crewmen of Apollo 7 whirled through space suffering from stopped-up ears and noses. They took aspirin and decongestant tablets and discussed their symptoms with the doctors. Some of the crew's grumpiness during the mission could be attributed to this physical discomfort. Now, returning to the mission objectives. At liftoff, Three flight tests remained before Apollo would go for the lunar landing. There was a lot to get done. The flight control team tracked each objective and added new ones to exploit each opportunity. With a single shot to qualify a spacecraft, little was left to chance. The Apollo 7 flight plan was incredibly precise breaking objectives down and literally keeping each minute and second chocked full of activity. The flight plan was designed to cover all of these objectives, and if some weren't accomplished, they would be added to the workload of the next flight. As the flight progressed, the test results received led NASA to update the flight objectives, add new tests, or modify existing ones. It always has been this way in spaceflight, and it will continue to be as long as missions are measured in days and weeks. Chiral knew the lunar game plan and understood that there was a lot to get done before they could take the next spacecraft to the moon. According to Gene Krantz, as the mission continued, Wally's cold was as much a test of the flight control team as was flying the mission. The flight directors were hard-pressed to satisfy a cranky Chiral and push ahead to clear the deck for the next mission. 
There was little that pleased Schrall about what was going on at Mission Control, and the discomfort and irritability caused by his cold soon made him pretty testy with Cunningham and Isley as well. Glenn Lunny, in particular, always seemed to be at the helm when Wally was testy with the ground team. Tension with Sherall actually began with the launch decision. When flight managers decided to launch with a less-than-ideal abort option for the early part of the ascent. Once in orbit, the spacious cabin may have induced some crew motion sickness, which had not been an issue in the earlier, smaller spacecraft. So, as Chiral's head cold worsened, he became irritable with requests from Mission Control, and all three astronauts began talking back to the Capcom. An early example was this exchange after Mission Control requested that a TV camera be turned on in the spacecraft. Chiral, you have added two burns to this flight schedule, and you've added a urine water dump, and we have a new vehicle up here, and I can tell you at this point, TV will be delayed without any further discussion until after the rendezvous. Capcom, which was Jack Swigert. Roger, copy. Chiral, Roger. At this point, Deke Slayton decided to get on the line with Apollo 7. Capcom 1, Deke Slayton. Apollo 7, this is Capcom number 1. Chiral, Roger. Capcom 1, all we agreed to do is flip the switch. Chiral, the first part is garbled. Then he says, with two commanders, Apollo 7... But Slayton cut him off. Slayton said, All we have agreed to do this particular pass is to flip the switch on. No other activity is associated with TV. I think we're still obligated to do that. Sherall, We do not have the equipment out. We have not had an opportunity to follow setting. We have not eaten at this point. At this point, I have a cold. I refuse to foul up our timelines this way. Moving on from that exchange, the next significant event was the service module propulsion engine firing test. This engine had to fire right every time. It was the engine that would slow Apollo into lunar orbit and push Apollo back out of lunar orbit on the return trip. It was the only rocket they had for these crucial jobs. If it didn't work, the crew could not return home from the moon. Wally fired it up and moved into an orbit that would let him rendezvous back with the S-4B the next day. On the first firing, the crew had a little surprise. In contrast to the smooth liftoff of the Saturn, the blast from the service module engine jolted the astronauts, causing Sherall to yell, Yabba-dabba-doo! Like Fred Flintstone in the contemporary video cartoon. Later, Isley said, quote, We didn't quite know what to expect, 
but we got more than we expected, end quote. He added more graphically that it was a real boot in the rear that just plastered them into their seats, but the engine did what it was supposed to do each time it fired. In fact, the service module engine performance was a joy. All told, the service module engine made eight firings, performing within 1% of the engine acceptance test thrust and specific impulse values. After it worked the first time, Mission Control relaxed a little. The next major event was the return to the S-4B for a second rendezvous. The following day, Apollo 7 burned its spacecraft propulsion system for the first two times in the mission and returned to its four-jawed alligator, which was now angrier than ever. And Apollo 7 Houston, uh, how close are you now? We're close to about, uh, oh, about 70 feet. It's tumbling rather wildly, so we just have to stay away from it. All right, you're out of town. We need to copy, Jack, though. In this maneuver, Apollo 7 had accomplished the first rendezvous of the program, and in so doing had proven capable of meeting still another requirement for lunar flight. 1618 plus 1221. This is how the crew described the second rendezvous after the flight was over. Well, this particular shot, I think we're about 25 feet away. Now, after a rather great amount of work that was done to accomplish this rendezvous, Don Isley got us in the position where I could decelerate and come back and see the booster again. This is the S-4B as we see it after the rendezvous was completed. This is the uh, documentary proof that we actually saw the S-4B twice. You'll notice that the slot panels are all deployed, and it's uh, rotating at a fairly healthy clip and it didn't seem to be having any special orientation. It was uh, rotating about all three axes. With the second rendezvous now complete, how about a little TV coverage? Always before, we've had to be content with merely listening to our astronauts during their flights. In Apollo 7, through the medium of television, we could actually see them in space for the first time and become better acquainted with weightless life aboard a spacecraft. You're picking up, I can read it now, just a minute. It says, from that uh, lovely Apollo something, you guys should write Apollo it. room. High, High atop everything. High atop everything. Looks good. I can see Wally Hamlet now. Don has a smile on his face, and there's Walt. Okay, what's the next one? A little closer, Wally. It says, keep those cards coming. Now I have a clip of the astronauts explaining the film they shot while in orbit. We'd like to tell you about our flight the easy way. The first thing I'd like to do is to project some of the film that was taken with the spacecraft camera. We had a 16 millimeter camera on board. 
One of our first concerns was that we had had problems with other crews in extravehicular activity, or EVA. In this case, we were within a large spacecraft where we could move, and we were concerned somewhat about IVA, or intravehicular activity. As a result, we carried extra film with us, and it was quite surprising. IVA was a delight. It was very pleasant and a very easy environment for man to live in, to adapt to immediately. Okay, we're coming up along the uh, Gulf Coast of the uh, United States along through here. We took some very interesting stills of the S-4B above each of the major Gulf cities. You're looking down along the Gulf Coast there on the left, and we'll have, uh, there's Apalachicola, I believe. It trails right on across uh, Florida, and we had a very beautiful sight that we all were amazed at looking down at the S-4B backgrounded by the Cape, and here comes the Cape right over the top. There's where it all began, right there. It's quite surprising, but each of us that come back say that this must be a blue planet because of the uh, bright blues of the ocean and the slight blue haze. This is Don's little rat nest where he kept his food compartment. <laughs> Uh, I found a little crack above the uh, uh, optic stoic panel. There you see where we had our toothbrushes and toothpaste and also our uh, communications helmets when we weren't using them. There's Wally's stowage bag with a red towel sticking out of it. And there's mine with a helmet mounted below it. These were things were just pinned to the wall with snaps. We're doing a little sightseeing here, and uh, this is a, an example of how easy it is to move around in zero-G. You'll notice we're moving very slowly. Turns out that you can adjust quite readily to the environment, and uh, for several days up there, we were all commenting on how amazed we were that anybody could ever feel bad in, in the environment. It's just uh, the most relaxing sensation you've ever had. The interesting thing to note is we started the sequence, you must have observed there was no one there. Uh, as we continue the sequence, you'll note that Walt is lying down there, Don is getting dressed and attaching his communications harness, and that I'm over in this lower corner. And after we got back and saw this film, we began to realize that someone else must have been holding the camera. <laughs> it seems the television films, uh, that caused some consternation too, and there was no one in the couches. There, there seems to be a tendency of of uh, the ground, I think, to believe that uh, unless somebody's sitting there, you know, really flying all the time, it's not going to stay up, but it's, it's obviously not the case. Don is at the lower equipment bay, uh, as he is typically shown in these films, eating something, uh, <laughs> working at the sextant for an alignment. And rather interestingly enough, we had attachment points, uh, Velcro, which is a sticky material at the base of the spacecraft, to hold us in position. You'll notice Don isn't even using it. He is held in position basically by a minor soft handholds. Here's a good example. Don's sitting here, he's fixing a meal and he's unpacking it right now and uh, he wants to leave something temporarily in the air, that's where he leaves it. Well, it's also interesting though that I'm sitting sideways, 90 degrees to what you'd normally think of being the normal way, but that doesn't seem to worry you up there. There isn't really any up or down. <laughs> no one seems to care whether you're uh, <coughs> upside down or not. Turns out you really need very little in the way of attachment or uh, places to hold you. Here's Wally doing a demonstration of uh, zero-g maneuverability. And you, ought to see, you ought to see him come back. He's just as graceful as you ever saw anybody. Gazelle boy Shirai. 
This is really out of character for me, so they're giving me a hard time. <laughs> this next scene is not out of character for Wally, though. Here we go. <laughs> now, Walt is the gymnast of the group, and he had to have his opportunity. The important thing is, you may note that we're having fun and games. The antics really are to demonstrate that we were very comfortable and did not feel that we were in an awkward environment. Notice the tremendous number of switches and circuit breakers we have, over 700. Not one was inadvertently actuated throughout the whole flight. Walt's preparing some orange juice here. There's a water gun they used to put the water in the bag. He's in the process now of mixing it up. <laughs> so this was to illustrate uh, what gas bubbles do when you uh, spin something. They don't actually coalesce into one large bubble, but they do concentrate in the center of the bag due to centrifugal force. By spinning it up, we found that uh, the little small gas bubbles would coalesce in the center. Uh, here I'm showing a plastic bag of coffee. This is our great high point after the rendezvous to have a plastic bag of coffee. Uh, notice the bubbles as they move. And this is quite interesting to us. We've had all sorts of experiments to determine how bubbles react in the weightless environment. And we'll spin this particular bag as well. And you'll see the bubbles concentrating right in the geometric center. This particular shot is a shot of the number one window, as I described on my side, where some of the external debris from water dumps and urine dumps have collected on the outer pane. The demonstration we're trying to show to you here is that even as clear as these windows are, external objects that are with us in Earth orbit may collect on the spacecraft. Uh, from every flight, we've had reports of objects that seem to <coughs> come off the uh, exterior of the spacecraft, and this is what we've seen, finally, on the window itself. Uh, Walt, I think you should describe this one. You were nearer to it. This is the picture, one of the very best we took, of uh, Hurricane Gladys that was sitting in the Gulf of Mexico during the flight. And it, uh, I guess it was the past before this, or I guess maybe the day before, that Wally gave a mark over the hurricane itself, and we became a weather satellite. And this pass was uh, just an exceptional one to be able to get a picture of the entire hurricane. Now, as we are world travelers, I thought we might take you around the world a little bit. And here you can see the complete tracing of the Suez Canal, all the way up to Port Said, the Gaza Strip and Israel and the Republic of Egypt. I think it's rather interesting to note, uh, particularly in our president's remarks and the work he has done to make our space program peaceful, that with the opportunities we had to fly between the latitudes of 31 North and 31 South, the world was very peaceful and very attractive to us. And I think we can show you that with some of these other slides. Here we are over the Ganges River of India, and the Himalayas that were there a long time before Gordon Cooper went over. But Gordon Cooper is the one that had pictures of Himalayas from every different aspect, both on his Mercury and Gemini flights. And Mount Everest is up in this area, and the next one I think will show you the fantastic elevations of the Himalayas. It's one of the uh, dominant scenes for the first several days of the flight, as you always seem to have good daylight right over the Himalayas. And the picture you have right here, for example, there's the 12 tallest peaks in the world are all in that picture. And here is a picture of the Tibetan area. You notice the snow line, that's about 18,000 feet. And the clarity of this is due to the fact that there's very little atmosphere from this surface up to where we are. 
And where our spacecraft started is uh, shown in this slide. We are off the west coast, and you can find that we have the California area right Los Angeles, Palm Springs, Lake Tahoe, Las Vegas. And uh, you can see just a little bit of the smog that seemed to permeate the air over the Los Angeles area. And fortunately, we didn't have to take any of that with us in the spacecraft. Here we have Mobile Bay, Mobile itself, Berkeley Air Force Base. Another generator of smoke is Birmingham. I would like to make note of the fact that from this you can see smoke in various areas coming through. And it shows what man can do to a beautiful climate by polluting the atmosphere. This is our classic victory at sea picture of Florida. I think, Walt, you might describe how this one was taken. <laughs> it shows there's no substitute for experience. We were uh, we just departed the Houston area, running across the Gulf Coast, and it was kind of dim light. It was towards the end, and we were running out of film, and I was being kind of tight with it. And Walt says, hey, there's a good picture. Take it. And I said, oh, the light's no good. He says, shoot it. He says, they really go for that sunshine coming off the water. <laughs> All I can say is he was 100% right. Next time I saw it was on the front page of uh, Florida paper. The live TV video reports, which lasted 7 to 11 minutes each day, had caught the public's fancy. They were dubbed the Wally, Walt, and Don Show, and they aired once every morning during the Apollo Pass between Corpus Christi, Texas, and Cape Kennedy, the only two ground stations equipped to pick up the transmission. By the third day, Sherall canceled the daily TV broadcast with a clipped, no further discussion. Mission Control was left with the task of convincing a skeptical press that all was well between the operations team and the crew. Deke Slayton, embarrassed by Sherall's outburst regarding the telecast, murmured on the voice com, Wally, all you gotta do is flip a switch. By the fifth day, the headlines in the Houston Chronicle declared, quote, Captain Awakes Grumpy, end quote. The press started getting in their licks and the controllers counted the days until they could get a new crew none of the mission rules discussed dealing with a grumpy commander. Sherall finally relented on the broadcast, and at one point, the astronauts, trying to make amends, held up crudely lettered signs that read, Hello from the lovely Apollo room. High atop everything. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.